Kimmy Felcher. Welcome to Crombie Hall's Short Stories and Poetry for August 25th, 2023. Hello, my name is Terrence O'Donnell. I'm here with some more good stories and poetry for everyone this week. This once a week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com. It is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and a few others. A little about me. I'm a senior citizen of Irish descent and a self-professed Shauna Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we are sitting together under the village oak tree, Crombiha, which translates to the tree of life. While here together, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found in medium.com, including some of my own stories on occasion. Some are scary, some are very thoughtful and soul-searching, others are just plain fun. This podcast is free to subscribe to for all who care to listen. I do offer the option of donations on the RSS.com webpage where this show is hosted to support my work, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. I bring you this podcast for the purpose of showcasing writers from around the world who are usually not on someone's bestseller list, but maybe would like to be. My goal is to entertain you with good stories and poetry that will spark your imagination and hopefully stay with you for a wee bit after we parted for the day. So now... I got a surprise for you this week, kind of a special deal. I have a guest reader from England. His name is Martin Morrison, and he graciously allowed me to record a session where he reads his story that I have for you this week. Then I have a poignant story about a little boy that will break your heart and leave you scratching your head by an author from Down Under. If you don't know what Down Under means, Australia. And then I have a short poem about a death under a tree. And then I got a scary story about sea creatures to round things out today. So what I'd like to do, I introduce Martin Morrison. And at this point, I'll re- let him introduce himself and we'll go from there. Welcome to On Crombie Ha. This is Terry O'Donnell coming at you. And I have a live interview with Martin Morrison from the UK. West Yorkshire, I think he said he's from. Um, although I'm not that familiar with England. Um, back in the day, I wasn't even allowed in England for a while, but that's another story. Big thing is, he's going to read his story, The Price is Right, today. Um, since he wrote this, it's only fitting that he's the one who's going to read it to you. So, at any time you want to go, Martin, let her rip. That's great. Well, first of all, let me thank you for having me on the show, Terry. Um, those people who are listening who recognize a Liverpool accent when they hear one will know that that's where I'm from. But yes, I've been living in West Yorkshire for the last 30 years. So my children all speak with this broad Yorkshire accent, which I won't do because when I do that, I end up sounding about 107. Um, so yeah, I've got this uh, short story here called The Price is Right. Um, as you will know, Terry, I'm a professional ghostwriter. That's what I do for a living. Um, but it's, uh, you know, that involves listening to other people's stories and sometimes intuiting the parts of the story that they're not revealing, what's going on under the hood, what are they thinking, what drug. So there's always an element of creative writing there. So it's it was a really, really good and, and really a uh, good release to be able to let my hair down and just let rip with pure fiction. Um, when I was younger, I was strongly influenced by people like Philip K. Dick, who wrote Blade Runner, of course, to Android, Streamer, Electric Sheep. Philip Jose Farmer, who wrote Riverworld. Um, and people like Norm, Norman Spinrad, 
And so the idea, the the core of this story, I actually wrote it uh, in 1991. I was 21 years of age, recovering from a nervous breakdown after, frankly, smoking far too much marijuana and drinking <laughs> too much beer almost constantly for three years. Um, it did wonders for my imagination, but um, damaged my mental health for some time. <laughs> so um, here it is. This is the this is the, the positive that came out of those few years of mis misadventure. So it's called The Price is Right, The Afterlife as a Game Show. What the fuck just happened? was the first thought to race through my mind as I tried to process the fact that I was still seemingly alive and kicking after being shot in the head. My wasted corpse was sprawled on the floor in front of me, and it was a shocker to see myself in such a terrible, irreversible state. I never got on with my mother-in-law ever since I'd had an affair with her girlfriend, but when she found out I'd fleeced her out of her life savings, a switch flicked in her head. It was one of those crypto scams, although to be entirely truthful about it, I had not set out to rip her off. When I signed her up, I genuinely believed I was doing something good, as it became increasingly obvious that things were not going as planned. I chose to ignore it and kept taking her money. Why couldn't she call the police like any normal person? I'd resigned myself to being caught, and I would have done the time. Yes, I was remorseful, and I had no intention of pulling a similar stunt again. The courts would have seized my house, so she would have got at least half of her money back. But now, that bitch had to go to the dark web, get herself a pistol, and blow my fucking brains out. I just won £10,000 on one of those scratch cards. If she bothered to wait just a few more seconds, she could have taken that off me. I wasn't going to report the victim over my fraud to the police, was I? She didn't have the patience. Now that winning card was covered in blood and skull fluid. No one was going to get their hands on that money. There was a tap on my shoulder. Are you ready? She asked. Ready for what? Who are you? I'm here to take you to the next place. You need to be processed, she replied casually. Of all the things I had imagined about being dead, a reaper that looked as though she had just stepped off the catwalk was not one of them. Where's your size and black coat, cloak? I blurted sarcastically. You mean this one? And she instantly shapeshifted into this terrifying, seven-foot, faceless being, sighed at the ready. Before I could scream, she changed back. This is the world of thought, Sean. We, the keepers, appear in a way that is more digestible for newly passed souls. Newly passed souls? You mean I'm a fucking ghost? Only if you stick around, Sean. Come on, I'll take you, she declared. And with that, the light in front of us started wobbling before tearing open to reveal a portal. And off we went. I found myself in the dock of a courtroom. More theatrics. The land of thoughts, I reminded myself. A voice from a short, round person in the corner of the room announced, NDS 729-850-29582 has arrived for processing. E.N. Sean Thompson. The reaper appeared next to me, 
72,985,029,581 souls have died before you. So you are newly died soul number 729-8502982. And your earth name is Sean Thompson. What happens now? Right? Your life is reviewed to a high degree of detail. Every thought, wish, action, and word spoken is reviewed, assessed, and judged. Every cause produces an effect shown. That's karma. The mention of karma prompted another question. Does that mean I have to go back? It depends on your score. The higher the score, the better your rebirth. Most people freak out at the thought of going back as a different species, but everything you've ever known is erased. So if you are born as a cockroach, you're going to love being a cockroach, at least until the pest controller poisons you. I looked over at the jury, a line-up of well-known gurus, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, Krishna Morty, Krishna, Gerja, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and Jesus, to name a few. A few of the commandments I had broken flashed through my eyes. I looked at Jesus, a dark-skinned man with very kind eyes, and wondered what he'd make of my misdemeanors. Perhaps I was going to be one of those pampered poodles owned by a blue-haired old lady. Then I glanced over at Rajneesh and felt a little more reassured. What am I guilty of? Being human. The trial, or processing, as the reaper had called it, got underway. Every moment of my life was displayed and replayed holographically in the centre of the court as the honourable members of the jury tapped out their judgments as pluses and minuses on handheld devices. For every one of my good deeds, the points on the right of the room were racking up. My dissension into hell was displayed on the left. The figures in the middle... They showed the balance. It took seconds to go through my entire life, but somehow I was vividly aware of every single moment, and my attention was gripped by the rise and fall of the summary digits. Whatever that total was going to be when my life was processed would seal my fate. I panicked when the numbers dipped, reaching many thousands below zero, and I was glued to them like an addict at the races as the digits climbed towards zero and back into the black. My soul was on the line. Was I facing eternal damnation or paradise? Everything came to a standstill. God spoke in a loud, booming, but somehow unintimidating voice. NDS 729-8502-9582. Processing is complete. Your karmic score is 95,492,253. There was a pause. Congratulations. Come on down. The price is right. Heaven is yours to buy. This is my second story for you this week. It's from a, a lady in Australia by the name of Janet Daniels Thomas. It's entitled Henry in the Lake. And she says, this is my contribution to a fiction writing competition here in Australia. Hey, buddy, Henry's dad called out from down the hall. Do you think you'll be okay walking to the bus station on your own today? I'm eight now, Dad. You don't have to walk me. I know the way. 
Henry smiled as he was packing his school bag. He was excited about going to school all on his own and showing his dad how grown up he was. Henry joined his dad in the kitchen, ready to go. Henry's dad knelt so they were eye to eye. Thank you for helping me out today, kiddo. Henry grinned in response. Work called and asked me to come in early, so I have to go. But you've got everything you need, right? You'll be okay to getting to the bus stop this morning? I'm going to be fine, Dad. You need you don't need to worry. Henry shouldered his backpack, hugged his dad goodbye, and started his short walk to the bus stop, stopping to admire a pale yellow butterfly in Mrs. Noon's garden. Butterflies were his mom's favorite. When Henry continued his walk toward the stop, the school bus flew past him. Oh, no! Henry ran as fast as he could, but he wasn't fast enough. Ahead of him, Henry saw other children get on, and the bus pulled away from the curb and continued down the street before he could make it to the stop. This was his first time catching the bus, and it wasn't going well. He wished now that he could, didn't stop to look at the butterfly. Turning, Henry looked up the street and saw his dad's car was already gone. The only option now was to walk to school. Henry's school was on the other side of the lake, so he knew if he followed the footpath around the lake, he'd get to school. Henry also knew that it would take a long time that he'd be late for class. Henry studied the lake. He liked the glittery sunbeams bouncing off the lake. The way the sunlight hit the water made it look like the lake was filled with jewels. The water was calm, flat, and looked so steady. If I walked across the lake instead of around it, I'd be on time for class, Henry thought to himself. When Henry's mom was alive, she told him he was capable of anything. Henry's heart ached as he remembered his mom's smile, how she always smelt of daisies, and how she made Henry feel like anything was possible. With the echo of his mom's voice, you can do anything on his heart and mind. Henry walked towards the edge of the lake. He didn't bother taking his shoes and socks off. Instead, Henry checked to make sure the straps on his backpack were secure and started to walk across the lake. The water was cold, but just as he suspected, Henry didn't sink. Henry was delighted. This was working. Walking across the lake wasn't what Henry thought it would be. It was bumpier. Henry traversed the top of the lake, but it felt like walking across a field. Some parts of the lake were smooth, some parts were steep, some parts felt slippery while others felt firm. It was harder than Henry thought, but he kept walking. When Henry looked down, his shoes and socks were soaking, but the water only came up to his ankles, even when he found himself in the middle of the lake. Henry's dad had told him the lake was very deep. Maybe he was at the deepest part right here in the middle. Henry looked down could see through the clear water. A few fish went by, and he waved at them with a smile. Henry reached, to the, other, reached the other side of the lake, crossed over the wet, sandy banks, easily climbed over the fence, was walking up the steps to the school's entrance just as the first morning bells rang. Success! In class, Henry's teacher, Mrs. Madison, was walking up and down the classroom, stopping to correct spelling and encourage students. Great job on that picture, or to remind Claire, who was always daydreaming and staring out the window, to focus on your work, little miss. When Mrs. Madison reached Henry, she noticed the puddle around his feet. Oh, no, Henry, what made your feet so wet, she asked. Henry smiled up at her. I, it was my walk across the lake this morning, Mrs. Madison. Mrs. Madison frowned. Excuse me? When I walked across the lake to get here, Henry explained, my shoes and socks got wet. Sorry, miss. Henry, did you just say you walked across the lake? Mrs. Madison asked, looking concerned. I did. Henry carried on with his picture of a dinosaur. It was a T-Rex that looked so fierce. Henry, do you remember when we had a class on telling the truth last week? Mrs. Madison gently reminded. I remember. 
Henry was adding sharp teeth to the dinosaur and felt pleased that his picture looked just like the one he had seen in a museum on the last school trip. His dad would love this. I'd like to know how your shoes got wet, but I'd like to know the honest answer, Henry, Mrs. Madison spoke again. Henry sighed. This was going to get frustrating. He just wanted to get this picture, dinosaur picture finished. I missed the school bus this morning and thought walking across the lake would be faster than walking around it, Mrs. Madison. He added more green to the T-Rex and frowned when the pencil snapped. Henry reached for his sharpener and wondered briefly why Mrs. Madison was still at his desk. Henry, Mrs. Madison knelt beside his desk so that her faces were close together. Mrs. Madison. Henry wasn't sure what was happening, but he sensed things weren't going well from the look on Mrs. Madison's face. People can't walk on water, Henry. You know that, don't you? She asked. I didn't know that, Henry answered with a shrug. No one had told me it couldn't be done, so he'd done it. It just seemed pretty simple to Henry. Mrs. Madison looked worried. She stood to address the class. Okay, everyone, we're going to pack away our drawings and get ready for music class with Mrs. Trenby. The class sprang into action, children putting their pencils away and tidying their desks. Henry, can you stay behind, please? Mrs. Madison asked. Henry frowned. He loved music class and was looking forward to playing the cymbals this morning. They were his favorites. He loved the loud noise when the cymbals made when, they cr when he crashed them together. Henry also liked how much his, it made his best friend Tom laugh. He didn't want to miss out. The rest of his classmates lined up in pairs by the door the way Mrs. Madison had taught them to, and Miss Trenby appeared to take him to music class. Henry returned Tom's way and felt sad that he wasn't going to be with him. Henry, Miss Madison invited, sitting on the story time mat and patting a place in front of her. Come and talk to me for a minute, okay? Henry joined her on a mat and waited for what was next. Miss Madison gently poked Henry's shoes. They were damp and cold. These are so wet, little guy, she said. How about we take them off and you can wear a spare pair from the cupboard so you don't catch cold? Henry wasn't happy about that. The spare shoes were for children who sometimes came to school without shoes. He didn't like that they were old and smelly and wanted to wear his own shoes. I'd like to keep mine on. Henry didn't want to be rude or appear difficult, so he added, My mom gave me these. They're special. Miss Madison smiled and said, Okay, I understand that. You can keep your shoes, but maybe we could put the heater on them and help them dry out instead. Is that okay? Henry smiled, relieved. He didn't have to wear the embarrassing spare shoes. Miss Madison talked to Henry about the lake. Henry repeated that he walked across it. Miss Madison said it was important to tell the truth and that Henry wasn't in any trouble. Henry said he understood that and that he was telling the truth. Miss Madison walked with Henry to the principal's office to talk about what happened. Henry told him the truth, that he walked across the lake so that he wasn't late for class. The principal gave Henry a similar talk about lying. Henry was starting to get fed up. Why didn't grown-ups listen anymore? Henry repeated his story a few times and grew worried as he watched the glances between the principal and Mrs. Madison. Henry, the principal, had made a teepee with his fingers as he knelt his arms on the desk. Henry liked the teepee and remembered how fun camping with his dad over summer. Mrs. Madison and I are just a bit worried about your story, Principal Gray explained, because people can't walk on water, son. They can. Henry didn't know why everyone's making such a big fuss. It was the faster route to school, so he took it. Wouldn't you walk across a lake if it was faster than around it, he asked. Well, yes, I would, Principal Gray chuckled. But the thing is, Henry, that's not possible. Henry remembered the water around his ankles, the fish swimming beneath them, and how the experience was real. He wasn't lying. 
It is possible, Henry defended himself, feeling tears rise to the surface because he felt so helpless that everyone's telling him he couldn't do what he'd done the very morning. He didn't like being called a liar. He just wanted to go home. Henry, if it's okay with you, we're going to get our school psychologist in to talk with you for a few minutes. Is that okay? Henry bit his lip. Is something wrong with me, Principal Gray? No, no, Principal Gray reached across and gently patted Henry's arm. There's nothing wrong with you, and it's totally okay to see a doctor for our brains when things feel a bit um, scrambled in there. This isn't a punishment, and you've not done anything wrong. We just want to, to make sure you're okay. Henry wasn't convinced this wasn't a punishment, but because it didn't feel great, but agreed to see the school psychologist because it seemed to make everyone happy. Psychologist was a young man called Adam. Henry liked him right away. Adam had toy cars, and they played together while Adam asked Henry questions. After a while, Adam asked Henry to put the toys away. Miss Madison and Principal Gray came back in, and all three adults talked while Henry swung his legs, waiting on a chair. Adam, Miss Madison, and Mr. Gray all told Henry that it was impossible to walk across the lake. Henry gave up. It was so annoying to talk to grown-ups who just didn't listen. Henry was tired of all the questions and just gave in. Okay, he said. I didn't walk on the lake. All the adults in the room looked so relieved. Henry went back to class and frowned as he learned about the math that morning. He just didn't understand what was so impossible while walking across the lake. His mom had told him before she died that he could do anything. Henry believed that. He knew walking across the lake was faster than walking around it, so he did it. Why didn't anyone believe him? When Henry's dad picked him up from school that afternoon, Mrs. Madison told his dad about the lake story. Henry's dad looked worried. They both talked to Henry again about it. By now, Henry had figured out the best way was just to lie and say he'd stepped in a puddle on his way to class. It made the adults calm down. Henry's dad took him to McDonald's and wanted to talk more about the lake. Asked about why Henry had said he walked across it. Henry knew now that telling his dad he really did walk across the lake was going to get him nowhere. So he asked his dad if they could talk about something else instead. Henry's dad agreed, but watched him carefully as they ate their Happy Meals. Henry hoped his dad would go back to acting normally soon. They both went home. Henry's dad worked on his laptop, and Henry watched cartoons. They both had dinner, and Henry had a bath before bedtime. Henry always read a book before he went to sleep, so he picked his favorite one, Aladdin and the Lamp, and got into bed. Henry's dad hugged him tight, wished him good night, and left, turning the main light out as he did. Henry sighed again. Today had been a really hard day. Henry noticed his curtains billowing in the evening breeze. He liked the way they moved as they were dancing. Henry thought about Tom and how much fun they'd had that afternoon playing with diggers in the sand pit and pretending they were miners like Tom's dad was. It would be cool to have a little more playtime, Henry thought to himself. He got out of bed and stood at his open bedroom window. You can do anything, Henry heard the echo of his mom's voice. He could just fly over to Tom's house. If Tom's window was open, Henry could easily float in and they could play with trucks and front loaders Tom had in his, in his room. Maybe their parents would let them have a sleepover. It was Friday night, after all. It would be easy to fly to Tom's, easier than walking, and much quicker than letting his dad drive him. Henry felt the cool breeze across his cheeks and knew he could do it. Fly! But then he remembered Mrs. Madison talking about telling the truth and knew she didn't believe Henry when he did. Henry found as he remembered the worrying line on Principal Gray's face and how Adam looked just as worried when they talked to, as they playfully crashed their, their toy cars into each other. Henry reflected on the way his dad carefully watched him at McDonald's. He didn't want his dad to worry. He had enough on his mind. With a heavy heart and a sad shake of his head, 
Henry shut his window, climbed back into bed, and cried himself to sleep. And that was the, that's the end of her story. And that's the sad part about this, is adults telling a child that he can't do something. I'm sorry, you never tell anybody you can't do something, because you never know. They might surprise you. So then I have a poem for you here. And this one is from Rena All Alliston. And it's entitled Wonder, Where the Cycles of Time Dance. I happened across her corpse in the woods below the oak tree. I didn't touch it, just sat and stared, wondering how something so delicate could be ripped in half by desirous eyes and tainted hands. Her soul, I could feel hovering over my shoulder, begging empathy to surrender, but my soul rests between life and death, sun and moon, where the cycles of time dance with man's pillar across earth's game board. Silly pawns they created, some to live, some to die, and some, like myself, who are meant to happen across corpses in the woods below oak trees, not to touch, but to sit, stare, wonder. And this is, she's from, according to this, she's Saponi, American Indian. So that's interesting. Um, so that's a, good, that's a good thing. So then I'm going to get to another story here to round things out for the day. And this one is called Below. And it's by my friend Sam W. up in Canada. It's easy to be afraid in deep water. So she writes a warning on here. A fair warning about this one if you've got any phobias about deep water or drowning. I know I do. No matter the weather above, these waters were always calm and beautiful. Pristine reefs banked sharply down into the deep, a vast expanse of deep water so dark you couldn't see the bottom. It wasn't even far off the coast, but the sharp sea cliffs were as abrupt as the end of the world. There was an undeniable fear that came from being so close to the abyss. The sense that if you stray out even a little bit from the shelter of the reef, you could be swallowed up by something hiding just beyond. There was no way to know if something was lurking below you. It was easy enough to spook in the deep water like this, especially when you worked in the field you'd chosen. Underwater photography was not for the faint-hearted, particularly not when your subject or choice was already frightening. He was hunting sharks, big ones. A small grouping of great whites had been spotted not far out, unusually close to the shore. At least one female, possibly two. They were bigger than the males on average. Not man-eaters, thankfully, at least not these ones. They were curious, though, which could be nerve-wracking when they approached to examine this unfamiliar creature in their environment. They seemed unusually reluctant to do so, however. While somewhat shy, most pointers weren't particularly bothered by humans, and yet they seemed skittish, on alert. He'd seen them nervous before. It was usually an indication of another predator's presence. Orca were about the only things that made sharks this big bulk. And if there was a pod in, in the area, it might explain why they were cautious. Regardless, it was a chance to get some breathtaking footage. Seeing one of these massive creatures swoop out of the mark was enough to make most people shrink. You didn't need to be in the ocean to feel powerless at the sight of a predator completely in its element. While often thought of as solitary hunters, it was not unheard of for them to group like this for hunting. A whale carcass, for example, could feed many grown sharks at once. Like most animals, they were not above opportunistic scavenging. What Was that why they were doing this? He couldn't recall seeing any large carcasses in the sea. Whales weren't particularly common so close to these reefs. 
and he hadn't seen anything else that would attract them. No sign of Orca either. He kept close by the coral for safety, just in case. While they were known to attack humans in the wild, getting in the middle of an Orca hunt wasn't high on his to-do list. He was so preoccupied with his camera that he nearly missed it. A shiver of movement in the kelp below him, off to the side. He froze, attention shifting back and forth between the sharks and the something further down. He hadn't had a clear look, only a glimpse caught in his peripheral vision. Probably just another fish. As he trained his gaze back on the sharks above, he watched them flinch, swinging about sharply and increasing their speed. They were getting agitated, circling each other so they weren't sure which way to, direction to go, waiting for another to make the first move. In all his years of doing this job, he'd had to develop a stiff spine and a lot of nerve, but watching these predators practically trip over themselves in obvious anxiety was setting his teeth on edge. They weren't just skittish, they were scared. Whatever had them rattle was not something he wanted to encounter. He was contemplating the best way for him to retreat when the first attack came. He jolted back against the reef, a sharp point catching his wetsuit and ripping through to the skin beneath as he lurched against his shelter. His eyes widened under his mask as he watched the figure charge, powerful tail turning the water as it came up to the sharks from below. And then there was another, and another, a dozen or more, answering some signal like an army rampaging across a killing field. They were unnervingly graceful, these creatures. They seemed a strange mix of serpentine and fish-like, their movements impossibly smooth in the thrashing blood-filled water as they used the shark's panic against them. There were strange daggers in their human-like hands, and they used it in a brutal effect. He couldn't believe how quickly it was over. He had never, in all his years, witnessed something so callously brutal. Punctured and carved open, the carcasses of the freshly slain fish were beginning to sink into the gloom, trailing clouds of blood behind them. The swarming creatures followed at their leisure, calming again now that the slaughter had ended. Once he felt safe enough that he had not been spotted, he finally turned to see what had cut him. He was careful picking at the coral and brushing away entwined strands of kelp to expose the sharp object. It had been there a while, he could tell, carved in barnacles and a layer of grime and crud that tends to build up over anything left at the seafloor for any length of time. It took a while, tugging and twisting at it, before it finally came away in his hand, and he got a clear look. With a sinking feeling, he realized what he was holding, a blade, wickedly sharp even under the detritus and dangerously barbed, and worst of all, it was familiar. It was the same sort of dagger he had just seen in the hands of the creatures from below, perhaps lost in a similar hunt to the one he just witnessed. He hooked his camera on the reef to free his other hand, working to dislodge some of the coating as best as he was able to get a clear look. The handle was strangely formed, intricately carved stone in the shape of a stylized squid. Tentacles twisted together and looped back on themselves to create something comfortable to hold. It was quite heavy, difficult for him to balance in the water. But as he was engrossed in studying his find, he found himself feeling unnerved all over again. He had his back turned to the open water, and as he turned again, he felt the chill of the cold water sinking into his bones and something else as well. It was watching him curiously from afar, floating out there, barely visible at a distance. Like the dead sharks, the wound in his back had left a visible bloom of blood, a reddish beacon declaring his location. Glancing down, he realized there was movement in a kelp again webbed hands, tipped with strange talons and with fingers extending far beyond the lengthening dexterity of anything human, were reaching up through the seagrass, grasping onto the coral, slowly pulling their grotesque shapes along, stalking like wild cats. Unblinking eyes watching him, 
wide and empty like the sharks they'd been preying on. Up close, they looked something like the old stories of merfolk and sirens, only a twisted child's nightmare version of them with sharp bare teeth and gaping gill slits. Adorned in twisted braids of seaweeds and shells, those daggers sheathed the, the joint of tail and upper body. They moved to surround him while he was distracted. While he was still grasping the knife tightly in hand, he knew there was no chance he could move fast enough to defend himself. They didn't give him the chance to think of any other option. Before he could make a move, the creatures were already on him. One caught his wrist, another his arm, a third his ankles, tails buffeting him, almost knocking him senseless as they pulled him down. He couldn't scream. He kicked, fought to claw at the reef and try to catch himself to anything to keep from going down into the inky darkness where they had come from. But it was no good. As strong a swimmer he was, there was no fighting these things. The last thing he saw before the pressure of the depths began to overwhelm him was a distant shimmer of sunlight on the surface overhead. The stream of bubbles he exhaled as his captors pulled the mask from his face was all that would be left of him. And that's that's this story. That's the, all the stories I have for you this week. So I hope you enjoyed the stories. And, you know, as always, I try to offer you a variety of fictional stories of poetry and give you something a little that touches the heart a little bit, like the Henry story I gave you. So don't forget to read the news newsletter for this show. It's going to be available on medium.com, substack.com, and my blog section of my website, Crown Beha. And now I'm going to play for you a parting song. Until next time, slancha. I have a nice little house and a cover to a grass. I have a plant garden running by the door. I have a shelter for the hens and a stable for the ass. Now what could a man want more? I don't know, maybe so, but a bachelor is easy and he's free. But I've lots to look after, though I'm living all alone. Sure, nobody's looking after me. Me father often tells me I should go and have a try To find a girl that owns a bit of land And I know the way says it that there's someone on his mind And my mother has the whole thing planned I don't know, maybe so But would mellify them greatly to agree Now there's little Bridget Flynn, sure it's her I'd love to win But she never has an eye for me Now there's a little girl who is worth her weight in gold And that's a decent diary, don't you see? And I mean to go and ask her just as soon as I get bold If she'll come and have an eye for me Will she go? I don't know But I'd love to have her sitting on me knee And I'll sing like a thrush in a hawthorn bush If she come and have an eye for me I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and you'll return again for another episode of Crown Behaw Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. 
Search for The Crown Beha Podcast in your favorite mobile app. I hope I've achieved my goal on helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shanghai, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Schlange Foyle, which means goodbye for now in Irish. <laughs>